Coming up next, The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy. Every Thursday from 4pm, right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the first show for The Crunch. It's Cam Slater here, and we're going to crunch the issues in politics and beyond. Let me know your thoughts on anything you hear today. Text 2057 or email inbox at realitycheck.radio. So what do we have coming up today on The Crunch? First, I'll share a little bit about how I got here and my new journey in the media. Then I'll play you one of my favourite songs, followed by an attempt to pin Winston Peters down and get some answers about the past and what he wants for the future in New Zealand. Next up, I talk to Olivia Pearson and chat with her in what I'm going to call the political tragics segment. After that, we'll delve into Avi Yemeni's new book and some of his deeply personal stories before finding out more details about his upcoming return to New Zealand after being illegally banned by police and immigration. Don't forget to let me know your thoughts, what you enjoy, what you hate. Text 2057 or email inbox at realitycheck.radio. So let's get into it. Enjoy the show. In October 2018, just four days before my 50th birthday, I suffered a debilitating stroke that left me unable to use my right arm a wonky face, and a weakened right leg. This could have been catastrophic, and in many ways it was, but I was never going to let this event either define me or stop me. But it did give me pause to think about my life and what led to that awful moment that landed me in emergency, wondering if this was it, wondering if my life would be ended by a damn stroke. I started my recovery lying there in the emergency department, resolving that I wouldn't let this challenge defeat me. 
I made a decision to live and to change my life so that I was no longer merely existing, dancing to other people's tunes. I decided to embrace life. That meant a few changes, and those changes snowboard over the years, but I am no longer the caricature character that media had painted me as. I have remade myself. Part of that journey meant I needed to abandon all the pain and the things that caused that pain. And slowly but surely, I jettisoned negativity, and that included the toxic path of partisan politics that I'd previously embraced. I took two years off writing and sat and contemplated the world, smoking cigars and watching the world go by. And then the pandemic hit, and that really opened my eyes to just how out of touch our leaders had become. I witnessed this country descend to a place that I'd never have ever thought we would get to. Seemingly forgetting the lessons of the 30s and the 40s, we had now entered the darkest time in New Zealand's history. It was a time of totalitarianism, and most of New Zealanders lay down and accepted it. The fighting spirit of Kiwis was devastated and destroyed, sacrificed on the podium of truth. And it was this that brought me back to the fore, lending my voice to fighting the totalitarianism and those who enabled it by going along to get along. Principles are important, and I'm not prepared to compromise mine, and that means my belief in freedom. This country has been nobbled by the most divisive government in our history, instigating and enforcing medical apartheid with awful mandates and backpasses. We were truly led by evil, not kindness. We are still witnessing the destruction of New Zealand society with racially divisive policies and the entrenchment of actual race-based apartheid in our institutions. I am opposed to all of this and will never rest until those who push these divisive agendas are held to account or run out of town. The pandemic forced me to assess friendships and cast aside those who went along to get along. I found new friends and new people who thought like me, which is how I've ended up here today on my own radio show with Reality Check Radio. I hope you're going to enjoy exploring my world from my Christian faith to my lifelong involvement in politics. I've had enough time watching the wheels go round and round. Whilst I had to do that to survive my stroke, now it is time to embark on my new life. Come with me on that journey. Let me crunch down the often complicated world of politics into easy to digest chunks. Welcome to The Crunch with Cam Slater. You've been listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Remember, you can check out the replays for today's show on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. for more with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Right, that's enough from me. Next up, I'll be wrestling with Winston Peters, trying to pin him down and get some answers from the wily old fox. But first, here's a song by Fat Boy Slim, right here, right now. And that's where you're going to find the best political advice, right here, right now at The Crunch with Cam Slater. With me on The Crunch this afternoon is the leader of the New Zealand First Party, Winston Peters. Welcome. Uh, good afternoon. 
So in the last couple of days, Winston, we've had a poll come out from Labor's own pollsters, Talbot Mills, and it's showing uh, that New Zealand First was on 4% in that poll, which is, to my mind, as someone who analyzes polls and has been doing so for 30-odd years, that's, that's New Zealand First on the cusp of re-entering Parliament. So what can you tell Reality Check Radio listeners about why they should think about voting for New Zealand First at this election, given that you're so close to that 5% threshold? Well, first of all, we are confident that the polls will just take off from here on in, and the answer is based uh, on the fact that we're packing the halls now, and that is a, a local poll wherever you go. So the second thing is uh, that New Zealand First is, brings balance and experience and common sense to politics, and it's shown in our time in politics the things that we have taken on, uh, the matters that have had to be raised before the public, which others were prepared to shut down and keep quiet, uh, we've had the courage to take them on and bring them out in the interests of the country and keep the system honest. And there's a lot of reasons for people to vote New Zealand first, but right here, right now in this election, it is that there is one party with the experience and the team to make a serious difference to a future improved government in this country. And we are a country in desperate economic and social circumstances now, and it's no time for experimentation or inexperience. It's time for people who know what they're doing uh, to get this country to the position that it should and could be, but not with the policy we've got at the moment. In terms of uh, you know, the listeners of Reality Check Radio, there's a couple of things that they're interested in, particularly your experience at the Freedom Village when you walked through there and talked to those people. Uh, that were protesting vaccine mandates and protesting the restrictions that we had on, and in many cases, some fine New Zealand people lost their jobs. You've said that you'll reinstate those people who lost their jobs through vaccine mandates and recompense them. Will this be a bottom line for the coalition? Look, I've heard of people talking about the bottom lines, but we have never talked to bottom lines as a political party in our 30 years because you need the people to vote for you in the numbers that you need to get the influence to be able to deliver on things. And uh, often your media will come to you and say, well, is this a bottom line or that a bottom line? And frankly, we've never talked like that. But we have, as has been evidenced by two senior reporters over a period of time. First of all, it was Barry Sobers that first said it, and then Audrey Young said it in uh, 2019 or 2020, that we delivered more on our policies than any other political party. That's not my comment. They said it. And so it's making all sorts of commitments and not delivering won't do. Our record is to have delivered as much as we possibly could in short spaces of time, and we're proud of that record. But is that one of the things that you want to see, that these people who have lost their jobs can, A, get their jobs back and maybe get some compensation out of it for the appalling segregation that occurred um, under the Ardoon re regime? Look, I've said that these people need their jobs back. They've been unfairly and, I believe, illegally mandated out of their work, but they were hit with a kaleidoscope and a cacophony of uh, what you might call gaslighting from the system itself, from politicians, and dare I say it, the media. And so that you have people who are losing their businesses that they've run for 35 years. There were tens of thousands of workers who were badly affected as well. The cost of the country was massive, and that's why there should have been an inquiry into this. 
in the first place. But of course, it's been delayed until after the election. Guess why? Because they can't ex be ex exposed to un the unraveling of the truth. I supported the first lockdown in 2020 when we didn't know what we were dealing with. But I'd never supported since then. And I said that this was appalling that people should be man mandated out of existence and out of work and out of their futures. And most of the people down there at that protest in Wellington had been vaccinated. They weren't anti-vaccines. They were anti what was going on in their private lives and their business lives. And it was just simply tragic. And I went down to when I found out that parliamentarians had signed a pact not to talk to them. I could not believe in a democracy that was happening. And my colleague and I, Derek Ball, decided that we're going to go down and talk to these people. And we didn't give a hoot what the media thought. And even though they tried to poo-poo me, the truth is we need to talk to those people and they need to get justice. And when it comes to compensation, the level of that amount of compensation, I don't know. Because I know businesses that after 35 years were just collapsed. They lost everything. Yeah. Now that's... You know, we've um, seen governments apologise for actions of, of, you know, past decisions. We saw Jacinda Ardern humble herself in front of the Pacifica community to apologise for the dawn raids. We've seen apologies to, you know, um, uh, to various different Maori tribes. Do you think that the people who have suffered through these vaccine mandates and the, the injuries that have occurred with that, deserve an apology from the government? A proper and comprehensive inquiry, in my view, done properly, will lead to a, a, the government having to apologise on behalf of the decision that was made by the Adirn government. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. But as long as there's a proper inquiry. And right now, the parameters for that inquiry, in my view, are not sufficient for us to have any confidence in the inquiry that's going to come. It needs to change. So that's something for the other parties to be thinking about. Now, the second thing is, yes, I know she apologised to the Pacific people for the dawn raids and then allowed the dawn raids procedures to carry on. Well, there's been Remember a report that? come out this week that's shown that the dawn raids have carried on and it was a, in, in the report it says it was a hollow apology. Well, exactly, but this is all done for PR and for spin. And when it comes to the reality, if you were actually sincere in your apology on that, then you would have changed the procedure, yeah. but they didn't. It just shows you that politics has become all spin and hype and no substance. And just a final question about the vaccine mandates and things like that. Back in early 2021, before the protests got underway, there was a few tweets that you put out that have, people are, are throwing up now, um, given your stance about talking about, you know, investigating inquiries, all these things. I know the tweet. I know the tweet. I know the tweet and I know the Facebook entry. Yeah. They are both identical and I wasn't responsible for that. But after that date, I made sure that at 9.30 in the morning, I was there for everyone since that time to write this morning. Yeah. I so regret do you, it. So you I regret that? I regret it because I didn't mean that. And it was never my position in that context. But sometimes you, know, you can't be the... <laughs> You can't be at the lighthouse every day, so to speak. And sometimes, sometimes it's all might get up and you're not there. But I've decided after that, and I'm not going to say who did it, but I've got to take responsibility. But it was never my sentiment, and I've proven that over and over again because I've taken the trouble to listen to better advice of those who are neutral, academic, and they're not got any barrier to push who are saying certain things about the vaccine, which, in my view, are legitimate. Now, the yeah. media would love to try and... Say that this guy's a vaccine denier. It's a lie. I'm vaccinated. 
Yeah. But the fact is people were not given the information to, which is most essential in any operation or any medical procedure. They weren't given the information to make an informed choice. So the system was simply letting them down. And these people who can try and paint you in the corner need to answer the question, are they for freedom, for their for democracy, are they for people's rights, or are they just for some political lousy advantage when they attack these things? This is this is my first show. And I I believe I've probably the first person who's ever managed to get Winston Peters to say he regrets something. Well from the media. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's not the first time. You try in your in politics. The key is to ask good questions and keep on asking to get the answers. And also to have take the oversight. That happened, and I was asked that by a lady the other day down underneath, and I said, I know exactly the tweet and that post yep. you're talking about. Madam, I'm sorry that it happened, but I didn't do it myself, but I have to take responsibility because it's my Facebook and it's my tweet. So that's been corrected. And thereafter... As we built to you know 120,000 plus and rising rapidly now, uh, that's been the oversight I've kept. Look, I get comments all the time on my articles um, when I'm commenting about New Zealand first rising in the polls, or uh, you know you've said something that that I support or whatever. People comment all the time on my articles along the lines of Winston Peters betrayed us in 2017, presumably because you. You chose Labour instead of National. Why don't you tell us, you know, for the first time, what really happened in those negotiations and why you felt that you had to go with Labour instead of National in 2017? Well, first of all, look, I meet a lot of people and I say to them, did you vote for me in 2000? Who asked me that question? And I said to them, did you, did you vote for New Zealand first in 2017? No. So you didn't vote for us, but you wanted to tell us what to do. I mean, you're a communist is what I'm saying to you. That's what communists want to do. No yeah. right to have any input in terms of uh, that is no no support whatsoever, no democracy whatsoever. But even though they voted to make sure you couldn't do anything for them, when you did, when they hadn't voted for you, they now think you're guilty. And there are 480, what, 440, maybe 460,000 in 2020 that left national and went across and voted. For. But apparently it was all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, mummy. I'm laughing. <laughs> Fact is, they all in 2020 went across there, and she took all the credit. And here we go. But 2017. Look, we started the first meeting not with Labour but with National. Yeah. But uh, there was alarming things happened, and I could talk to you about it, whether people believe it or not. But I have given an explanation that Bill English knows about, and he's never gone public and said Winston's not telling the truth there. Yeah. He never. He's heard what I've said. He knows what I said, and I know Bill English well enough to know that he's not going to go out there and lie about the circumstance. It wasn't Bill's fault so much, but we know that a spill was on against Bill from the word go. Yeah. It's like I faced with when I shook Jim Boulder's hand after all the rows we'd had, I decided the government needs a country, we've got to put all that behind us. I shook Jim Boulder's hand and found out that an organised coup and spill was being organised by a person called Jenny Shipley. Those are the facts, and people need to face them. But I started with national, and then I became really alarmed. And so we just kept on negotiating. And when we were negotiating, it was clear that Labor didn't get it, the national didn't get it. But there was a housing crisis. There was a health uh, crisis. There was a crisis in education, in a sense. All those things were there a long time before uh, the election of 2017. 
and we believed that we could get far more done with labour. And we did. We turned railways around, never gone us. We turned our defence, $16 billion of forward spending with not one cent put aside. Well, all those Poseidon four planes are in this country at the moment, and we've turned that around. And then a whole lot of other things that were crucial to this country's provincial development, we did as well. But here's the rub. Labour put them all in their pamphlets, the whole lot, all the things we did in 2020 and claimed they were theirs. That is shocking. <laughs> is that why you've ruled them out after the election? Oh, well, I've ruled them out because they, I found out they simply lied to me on a number of occasions. The first time I saw the Hey Poor Poor report was it came out after the 2020 election. Mm. Go back and look at the chronology. It was done secretly under my nose. And when I said publicly this was a massive betrayal of a coalition arrangement and deceit against the people of this country and accused them of hiding the document from me, the Prime Minister uh, Jacinda Ardern denied it. But Willie Jackson let the cat out of the bag when he said, well, we'd have told him, he'd have told everybody. <laughs> I'm the Deputy Prime Minister, for goodness sake, and he, he thought he had a right to hide it from me. Now, that sort of thing means, and I said, no one gets a chance to lie to me twice. We've ruled them out in this election. Yeah, and there's no weasel words in that, though, is there, Winston? There's there's no ifs, there's no buts, there's no maybes. If you, I mean, I want you to say right here, right now on this show, if the cards fall in such a, if the cards fall in such a way that Labor needs New Zealand First to form a, a government, and there aren't enough votes on the centre right to form a government with you, will you go on the crossbenches? I made it clear to an interview with Audrey Young that ran in a big page in the Herald that we had ruled them out, and the reason why we ruled them out was their deceit and the uh, lack of um, uh, integrity when it came to these matters, and also the racist uh, separatist pathway down which their policies are taking us. That is categorical, what I've said, and I don't want to keep on saying it the whole darn campaign. And the second thing, of course, is at the end of the day, there are options such as going on the crossbenches and keeping the system honest, because my concern in this election is You've got some people saying it's our turn now. And the question is, our turn to do what? If it's not to dramatically improve in every respect this country's economy and social fabric, then what is there a turn to do? And the second thing is, some of these promises are being made at the moment reflect that they have got no understanding of the fiscal. So this country is broke. This country is sure in the worst situation it was in terms of our balance of payments. Than, since 1972. And how can people make all these promises in this campaign in the way they do? I'm asking listeners, examine what these promises, some of these politicians are saying and ask yourself, could this possibly ever be something they can put into action? Well, just on that and going back to 2017 and the negotiations with National and Labour, you proposed the Provincial Growth Fund. And yeah. there was outrage at the at that at the time, some three billion dollars worth of spending in the provinces. Yeah. Hindsight being 2020 would suggest that that was actually a bargain. Now, given that the government has borrowed in excess of 150 billion dollars uh, with all of the COVID stuff that's gone on, that three billion for provincial growth fund was that was actually could have been seen as a bargain at uh, now um, hindsight. Yeah. You're quite right, and uh, thank you for saying that. But you see, I'm saying to some of my critics, look, take your blinkered, biased eyes uh, off what you're saying for a while and look at this fact. Everything we spent in the provincial growth fund will be there 50 years from now. Yeah. 
60 years from now. We were not spending on consumption. We were spending it on infrastructure, critical infrastructure and critical changes. We built a huge mussel farm, for example, in the Portico. We're building the biggest mussel farm in the whole world. This is all what started by the Pinchot Growth Fund. But now, now you had the media and in the, inside the Beltway in Wellington, no understanding of provincial New Zealand saying it was in a bad. They didn't give a hoot about the provinces or had this respect at all. What saved us during COVID? It was the provinces and our exports that saved us mm. and how quickly these people inside the Beltway and Wellington figured. Well, that's the I mean, we can always look backwards and think think about if only, if only Bill English had agreed to the Provincial Growth Fund, we might have had a different outcome in 2020 or whatever. But when well, you no take... Behind, we started there. We started those negotiations with national being would have been the preference. Yeah. There's no doubt about that because I knew that Labor just had, didn't have any in-depth experience. We were worried from the word go. Uh, they had no in-depth understanding or business of how life works, or dare I say it, so many were disconnected from ordinary workers because they'd never done a manual job in their life. That was oh, okay. Exactly. So instead of looking backwards, let's look forwards. But we're going to have to touch on a couple of things looking backwards because I've noticed in a couple of your speeches you've and some of your Facebook posts and tweets that you've been talking about New Zealand's sovereignty. And there's a couple of key uh you know, agreements that New Zealand signed up to. We had the, you know, UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on um, Indigenous People that Key and McCulley signed us up to. And then there's the infamous Global Migration Pact, which, you know, under Cabinet, um, you know, rules, I, I guess the government wanted to pursue that and you you were the foreign minister, so you had to go and sign that. And then there's the latest WHO's pandemic treaty. If you're elected back into parliament, what concrete steps would you take to act for New Zealand's sovereignty in the face of some of those things and the outcomes that have come about as a result of us signing those? Well, here's my record. It's 2007 when UNDRIP came along. Yep. And I said, Helen Clark, we're not signing that. You and I have an agreement not to go down that pathway, and she agreed. Yep. It was not Helen Clark that signed up to it, or me. And I was the foreign minister. I was in charge of it. Yeah. I'm directly responsible there. And so we didn't sign it. And John Key it let uh, Peter Sharples go over in the dead of night without any information or public disclosure and sign up to it. But that's that's UNDRIP. And I'm utterly opposed to it because it gives the UN and their view sovereignty over New Zealand's law and New Zealand's democracy. And that's why it was wrong. And that's why Helen Clark agreed with me. Then when you come to the Global Migration Pact, uh, uh, here's the change here. The Global Migration Pact admitted by our changes and our reference to them that none of that had anything to do or any control over domestic New Zealand policy on migration. I must, I forced them to admit that before we signed up. But no, no, you had National Party and the Act Party saying all sorts of things without knowing that that was the key rider that made all the difference. Yeah. And the WHO, the first party to attack the WHO's recent uh, pandemic treaty and their new rules was New Zealand first. Because what I'm saying is there's no way that they should be allowed to determine what is a pandemic in New Zealand. And that's what they have set out to do. And I've alerted a number of other countries as well uh, in the Pacific and talked to them about how dangerous this is to them. And they're starting to get it. So I think there'll be kickback on that. So what you're saying is if New Zealand first is part of a government after the election, that you will be acting to make sure that 
New Zealand's sovereignty takes primacy over any of these, you know, UN or WHO or any of these other Quango-type impositions onto our sovereignty, you're going to be the bulwark against that and say, no, not on my watch. Well, that's the benchmark. Because you remember, I inherited the uh, Global Migration Pact when when I came along. And then so when I looked at it, I thought, hang on a second. What you're trying to do is tell us what to do. We're not having that. We're a sovereign nation. We've had a democracy since 1854. We're the first comprehensive democracy since 1893 when women got the vote before any other country. And so we're not going to have that. That's what I said, and that's why the changes were made, and that's why it was acknowledged. And the foreign, I can have it produced from foreign affairs, the documentation. But you're quite right. On whatever the international initiative might be, our country's sovereignty nevertheless comes first. That's a principle. Well, that's good to to hear that with no equivocation and no weasel words, that's what you're standing for. What about... What was wrong with Winston Peters? No one's ever accused me before of weasel words. No, well, you know, there's a, the National Party people do, Winston, you know that. Oh, they don't. They don't accuse me of weasel words. They accuse me of being too hard, too harsh, and too frank, and too candid. But I've never <laughs> said anybody say in Palm that guy speaks weasel words. Huh. No, mate, when they wouldn't raise a finger, I'd raise the roof. That's my record. You know, this is, somebody said this to me the other day. Um, they were saying, you know, when Winston Peters is laughing and, and joking and smiling, he's the guy that we want to vote for not grumpy Winston. This campaign, are we going to see happy Winston or are we going to see grumpy Winston? Uh, you're going to see happy Winston because the reason is we've got ourselves seriously organised, clinically ready for this campaign. We have confidence we are planning. The halls are being packed. We've got a Tauranga next week and I bet we get three times that the last speaker from another party got, maybe four times, and that's what in the matter, in the end matters. And in the end, the media who try to Cinderellaize and marginalise us are going to find out it won't work. You better start covering our media. Funny enough, out of left field, two media people have come to me tonight. Can we talk to you about the campaign? I thought, this is amazing. I haven't heard from you for 33 months. (laughs) 33 months. And now they're talking. Now they're talking. Just uh, last touch on um, some foreign affairs things. Are you concerned as a former foreign affairs minister with what we're seeing uh, happening around China, particularly with the way Australia is, you know, butting up against China, that we're starting to see, you know, more issues happening in the South China Sea, um, particularly around the Spratly Islands, and the the invidious uh, expansion of China's belt and road policies, particularly in the Pacific. Is is this a, a point where we need to say perhaps we need to decouple a bit from China or or look at that from a different perspective? Because You know something, it's really amazing you should ask that question because it was the National Party that signed up to One Belt, One Road. Mm. It was then called Obor, One Belt, One Road, and then they realised it's not a very good PR exercise from China's point of view, so they changed it to Belts and Roads, but it wasn't that when they started off. Now, I went and saw Wang Yi, the foreign minister of China, in China, in Beijing, and I said to him, could you please send me in detail what this policy means? And you know what? I'm still waiting. I asked him that five years ago, and I'm still waiting. Second thing is, though, I've made counter speeches saying that New Zealand is endangering itself by having one product, milk powder, one company, Fonterra, and one market, China. This is a disaster for this country in terms 
of spreading our risk and spreading our market. And we need to get our much diverser and market going as hard as we can possibly go. But in the end, New Zealand has got to look after its economic interests, but never, ever, while we're doing it, sacrifice our belief in freedom and democracy in the blue continent from which we come, that is the Pacific. That is our role, and we must never compromise it. Again, that comes back to your previous comment about New Zealand's sovereignty being pr- the yeah. primary driver in everything, rather yeah. than... Does New, a, has New Zealand first taken donations from Chinese interests? To the very best, and that is absolutely of my knowledge. No, we haven't. But we know where they have been given money to, and I've even got four pages of a graph saying where they've got where they've spent this money. You remember two members of parliament, one from Labour, one from National, left in the space of one week. Yeah. You know why? Because they were Manchurian candidates. And when they were about to come out, they both resigned together. Isn't it disgusting that there's been no disclosure of that? Well, that's p- part of the problem that we have with the media taking all of these subsidies. They they just run the government lines and they don't want to talk about these uncomfortable truths that are out there. Yeah, well, to be honest with you, I seriously am sorry for certain sections of the media because at once the fourth estate is a seriously great profession, it's an honourable profession. It is actually a critical profession for any performing democracy. And what has happened here, they've been so corrupted by the public interest journalism fund to actually have to print the government's narrative that the belief in the public's belief in the media now has been so destroyed and we've lost two-thirds. They've lost two-thirds of their readership. Well, they're not giving the people what they want. That's that's the thing is that, you know... We're not giving balance, not, not telling both sides of the story. The public want to make up their own mind. They're, done, they're sick and tired of journalists who think they're editorial writers. Maybe there's a case, uh, Winston, that you could have a policy at this election where uh, those recipients of the um, public interest journalism fund have to pay their grants back. <laughs> that would that, yeah, get some attention, wouldn't it? Well, you know, it's a fascinating thing when you say that. But look, I, this is the personal circumstances which I despise in, in the way it happened. That was put to us when we were in government with Labour. Yeah. We said to them, we said to them, you have got to be joking. Every political party will be screaming bribe and corruption. So what did they do, Labour? They quietly went on town, ran and told all the media ownership, look, we've paid to you now, but Winston Peters is stopping us. And boy, did we get a crap run in the last campaign. See what I mean? Yeah. We had a run for 33 months, and you now know why. Well, it's a, it's a cabal of collusion really happening, isn't it? A, co- a confluence of coincidences. Well, I made a speech 33 years ago about the media and said that it's coming, and I can find the speech, but it's coming, that the media is going to be destroyed because they're being denied investigative journalists the space and the time and the money to do their job properly. But I made that speech 33 years ago. I never thought that'd turn on me, though, <laughs> as time went by. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that you're surprised that they turned on you. <laughs> No, I'm not surprised anymore. You know, I just got a, I'm enduring faith in people because you've got to have it. Yeah. Uh, and so I do feel sorry for those genuine journalists trying to do their job properly because it must be difficult. And remember this, you know, they've all got mortgages, they've got wives, they've got husbands, they've got all sorts of kids, they've got all, responsib- all sorts of responsibility. When the government misuses their need for an economic survivorship to get their outcomes, and that's when things are corrupted. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. 
Now, one last question before we finish up, because you're on a time frame to get to your next uh, interview. This is something that's dear to my heart, being a firearms owner. We've seen some very draconian laws come into place that has seen what was supposed to be an independent firearms authority created is in fact a business unit of the police with a profit driver. And the way that they're treating firearms owners, some of the most vetted and you know checked people in New Zealand, is absolutely appalling. Do you feel responsible for some of that occurring despite uh, attempting to to nobble the, that legislation in the parliament? And did New Zealand first drop the ball there and basically hand a whole lot of votes to act as a result? And the last bit to that is, and what do you, what do you think you can do about that? Look, when uh, when the March 15th the massacre happened down in Christchurch, I said New Zealand will never be the same again. Mm. I'd also watched very cleverly somebody I know and have met called John Howard, who did the same thing about the gun ownership in Australia, and I watched what he did. And so we set out to pay people compensation properly back to get the guns, but we never, ever accepted that the control should be in the hands of the police. We were then and we still are for an independent commission handling this matter. That's our position. We didn't drop the ball when we haven't got it completed by the time with COVID and all the lockdowns coming in 2020 and the Labour Party went on and the deal we had with Stuart Nash, they changed and didn't then abandon the independent commission. Our policy is to have an independent commission, no ifs, no buts, no maybes. And it's not a bottom line, it's our policy. We're the ones that thought of it in the first place. So firearms owners who at the moment, I mean, I'm going through this process at the moment with registration and the doctrinaire high-handed behaviour of the so-called firearms safety authority is making people like me who were formerly great supporters of the police become hostile to the police. And I don't see the police management or the senior people in police actually caring too much that they've lost the goodwill of 250,000 honest Kiwis in the way that they have treated us as a result of actually crimes committed by a foreign person through the failings of the New Zealand police. Yeah, and that has to be remembered. It was through the failings of the New Zealand police. And not and that wasn't the first failing. There were a number of failings in the past as well. The second thing, I've not lost my respect for the police because I'm a, gun owner, I'm a registered gun owner myself. And I've defended for thousands of reasons the right to have a gun. But the fact is that we can and will fix the system up. My position is that I want to, uh, straight after the election, get together and I've sort of a couple of key barristers I know who also are hunters. I wanted to get them all in one room and say, look, let's sort this stuff out right here, right now, so that we can go forward with people supporting the law. Are you suggesting that we, instead of amending the Arms Act, like has been done multiple times and it's essentially not fit for purpose anymore, are you talking about perhaps a, a complete rewrite of arms laws that will bring things into alignment and make things a whole lot easier for control and registration and all of these sorts of things that are causing problems now? Well, I'm sort of saying that this fit up the election, I've already had a talk to some um, lawyers. I won't, can't say who, because they're, 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 these people are seriously embarrassed. Yeah. 
have the ownership of interest and their right to, to go hunting and they enjoy it. But what I want to do is say, look, guys, you've got yourself exactly two months to rewrite things and fix it up right here, right now. We're not going to go on with a system that doesn't do its best to get the full cooperation of legitimate gun owners. That's the See, it's from from my perspective, you know, and, and I'm a member of Antique Arms, and I collect things. I I, I just feel I'm being cre- treated worse than a gang member who seems to have open access to firearms and no interest from the police in controlling them, but they're very interested in controlling us. But that's where the police's focus should be, and that's why they should not be in charge of gun ownership. Their focus should be getting the guns off the gangs, and as hard and fast as possible, using every means they possibly can. But people out there legitimately using guns, and on a farm, when an animal breaks its leg, you can't, you can't get a bed, you can't do a thing, it is only mercy that puts that animal down right here. They've got to be put down out of their pain, so to speak. Yeah. And half the people who are engaging in these debates don't understand the practical circumstances of humanity that is required where gun ownership is concerned. So, yes, we have got to make that, we're making that a priority, but we're not standing around for three years to fix it up. We want it fixed up in three months. Well, that sounds like an admiral goal. I hope uh, you can, A, get the support to be able to influence that and, B, then make it happen. Well, you know, let me ask you this. I know that a lot of people went off to the ACT Party. Let me ask all those gun owners. So tell me one thing the ACT Party has done about it. Just one thing. One line. Just tell me. I'll just tell you what our policy is and what we've done already. Well, it's, uh, it's a contest of ideas. That's what we live in a democracy for. And that's why I've had you on on my first show, Winston, so that we can actually hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak, exactly what you stand for and what you've regretted in the past and what you're going to fix up in the future. So I thank you very much for coming on my show. And I say the Queen had a horse called Winston. She named it after Winston Churchill. So I don't like the analogy of the the horse's mouth, but I get get what you're saying and what you're saying. Well, John Banks had a dog called Muldoon once. You must remember that. (laughs) <laughs> That's right, he did. And there's a journalist in Parliament that's got to, got to call a dog, Winston, if you please. And he <laughs> proud to tell me. And I said to him, well, that, that was information you could have perhaps kept yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope to have you on again uh, closer to the election, Winston. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for the chance to talk to your listeners. And I uh, hope in this campaign people do one thing. Listen to what the debate, listen to the subjects and listen to the policies. But get on the roll and get out and vote. The democracy is imperiled if they just sit there and think leave it to someone else. They can't this campaign. We've reached an inflection point and it's time for action from everybody. So thank you very much for the chance to talk to you and your listeners. You're most welcome. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR. Well, that was an interesting discussion with Winston Peters. He's a cunning, wily old fox, but we managed to get out of him his regret for his tweets and Facebook messages about mandates. And I think he owned that. Let me know what you think in the texts or emails. He also gave us a commitment for a truly independent firearms safety authority outside of the police control and a hard promise to have nothing to do with Labour after the election. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're hearing, you can get in touch with us by texting us your message 
at 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We'd love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome to Political Tragics. This is a new segment, one specifically for political tragics. Each week I'll talk with a political tragic about what is ripping their undies in the news. This week's political tragic is Olivia Pearson. Welcome to the show, Olivia. <laughs> I don't quite know whether that's a compliment or an insult, Cam, but um, we'll find out. So, Olivia, we're, we're within 100 days now of the election. Mm. And there's about 97 days or something left to go. Um, a lot of people on the centre and the centre-right have been saying, oh, Nationals are just going to keep their powder dry. They're going to keep their powder dry. It's coming. It's coming. Where do you think the National Party is at? And let's start with their campaign slogan, which is, it's so forgettable. I was talking to my sister this morning and she couldn't even remember what it was. You've got it. You know what it is. I know what the slogan is. It's, uh, let's get New Zealand back on track. Right. So that's kind of the the limp version of build back better. (laughs) It's it's exactly, actually, that is a very good description of exactly what it is. And it's so loose and overarching, it doesn't mean anything. But that's how National like their campaign slogans to be. Um, And I know that from experience. Tell us a a little bit about that experience. Well, back in 2008, when John Key was trying to get into government, no advertising agency in the whole country would take them on as a political advertising service because they were considered so hideously right-wing. And this is when, you know, idiots like Marcus Lush were on air Uh, and fully in the tank for Helen Clark, and no advertising agency would take them on as a client, honestly, the National Party, because they were considered so Uh, right-wing. It's hard to believe, isn't it, really, given what John Key actually delivered? Exactly. I mean, it was so wrong-headed because he was more on their side than ours. But um, the, the odd thing about it was is they had to put it out to the freelancers. And because I was working in advertising at that time as a freelancer, we pitched for it, me and another guy, Glenn Jameson, who's done many of their campaigns uh, since. And we won it. We won it quite quickly because they just needed politically-minded people that were prepared to do their advertising campaign. But we gave them a whole lot of slogans, and I honestly can't remember the list, but the worst one, Glenn and I had a laugh, the worst one at the time was choose a brighter future. (laughs) And, of course, that's the one they went for. Yeah. And I think I've mentioned this before on air that some wag said, oh, why don't you choose a brighter poster? (laughs) And he was completely (laughs) correct. (laughs) Choose a brighter. So now we've got. Back on track. Know. Let's keep New Zealand, get New Zealand back on, back track. on track, which back does track. mean, yeah, you're right. It means build back better, but without saying it. Yeah. So we've got a WEF clone in yeah. there, basically. We totally and, do. And the development this week from the 
campaign of the National Party is Christopher Luxon getting Amanda, his wife, on board the campaign bus and the trail, uh, door knocking with him and creating, you know, Luxon's boasting about that Amanda's going to create her own YouTube channel. Did you see that video? Yes, I did. So is that all I could think was that that was a classic beta male approach, a man running to be the prime minister of this country, getting his wife on board, thinking that she would be able to win with women where he can't. We, you know, we've in the past loathed politicians that dragged their family into campaigning. We couldn't stand Jacinda Ardern shamelessly using Clark and then her child to soft sell messages to the public. We didn't, you know, we never saw John Key's wife, Brona. She never was in the news at all. No, very Same with Helen woman. Clark's husband was never in the news, except when he wrote his snippy letters to the editor, to the Herald, which they published from time to time. But by and large, they were invisible. I'm not sure this is a development that we want to see where unelected spouses are pimping their lackluster husband. Well, especially after he has come out and said, leave my wife out of politics. I'm the candidate, not her. And suddenly she's in his videos going door knocking around what Struggle Street, they called it. You know, Struggle Street's the middle of botany. All those houses are over $2 million. Owned by rich Asians, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, no, I mean, it's it, it reeks of desperation. And as you well know, I'm not a national Christopher Luxon fan anyway, so everything they do is going to look slightly absurd to me. But um, getting her in there to do his campaigning with him, I mean, door knocking actually door knocking. I, I think they have to do that because I, I don't know what their thinking is, but maybe he doesn't want to be a lone man turning up and knock on knocking on people's doors without a woman next to him to look legit. It's very strange. Desperation's a stinky cologne. Very stinky cologne. Worse than <laughs> links. <laughs> <laughs> I always used to th- laugh about links because they had a, a, a particular sub-brand called Inca, and when you ran it together, it sounded like Lynx Stinker. <laughs> <laughs> An advertising fail. Well, maybe you should go back to Old Spice. What was wrong with Old Spice? Nothing. My, I, my father is ex-military. Always, he was all, My childhood memories of my father picking me up in that beautiful Navy uniform, you know, f- Clean, smooth, and smelling of old spice. It's just beautiful to me. Probably used Cossack underarm as well. Um, probably something like that. I don't know if Cossack was around then. Old spice is pretty. It, it, you know, it, we, we grew up on the Oneidan line with that beautiful Katchaturian music. Our fathers smelt like, like naval officers. Yeah, like the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it was just gorgeous. Oh, we, we digress from politics. This is about politics. We better yeah. get back to that. So what about the left wing this week and absolutely unhinging themselves over a little clip of Christopher Luxon talking to a a public meeting, I don't know, in Nelson somewhere, and Mm. 
you know, the oldies were getting a bit agitated about the renaming of government departments like Waka Kotahi and, you know, mm. whatever else there is, God knows what they mean. Um, but they're like losing it and pretty much calling out the National Party as almost Nazis and <laughs> Russell Brown losing his, you know, his poise and his decorum, you know, Again. such as you can have when you're a 60-plus-year-old man who rides bikes everywhere with pannier bags on them. And gets scammed. <laughs> it's, exactly. I mean, is this something that that we should be outraged about, that, that Christopher Luxon answered some questions in a town hall in Nelson? Well, the odd thing about it is that he wasn't going for exclusively Maori language, was he? he, he his idea was that he likes oh. dual language signs. Yeah. And I got to admit, I'm a Kiwi. We grew up, you know, if you grow up in New Zealand, you, uh, you have an affection for Maori. And I do, and I always will have because I'm a New Zealander and I don't mind dual language signs. I really don't. They're a little bit long and perhaps not efficient because of that, but um, I like knowing the Maori names for things, um, but I don't like it at the expense of English not being primarily the national language of the country. Um, we're an English colony and that is still part of the British monarchy and we have a king, dipstick though he is, that's the political structure, and that's why we have a Governor-General. So let's not forget, we are an English colony. Well, just doing some research for this um, this little segment here, I found out that um, that NZTA, which of course is called Waka Kotahi by all of the forelock-tugging media out there instead of using their real name, uh, haven't even got a, a URL for Waka Kotahi. It just ends nowhere. It's, it, it's, so they haven't even bothered. It, they haven't even bothered going the next step and registering a domain name and then redirecting it to the NZTA. Yeah, website. so it's on the internet. So, oh, so, so what we're doing is we've got government departments that are calling themselves Maori names, but they. But if you then go, oh, okay, I need to check something out. I'll, I'll, I'll just search Waka Kotahi. Oh no, no, it's not there. No, because people also don't know how to spell it. And perhaps if they go with dual names instead of exclusively Maori names, we will know how to spell the Terio versions. Well, here's the other thing, right? Nearly every place name in New Zealand is Maori. Yeah, there was yeah. a there was even a song, you know, back in the 50s, I think it was, where it was all of the stops on the main trunk line on the railway line. And it's all it's it's all these, you know, Maori place names. And they're saying that we need to now have all of the European place names renamed to Maori names, or at least have both of the names on the signs. Are we going to go around to Rotorua, for example, and say, let's insert the English underneath that? Or we, we're not, are we? We're not, we're, well, not, we're not saying that. No, we're not saying that. But um, I, I don't have a problem with dual names, Maori and English. I really don't. I don't think that that's a biggie. And the it's fact not a die-in-the-ditch issue, is it? It's certainly not, not with what we're up against. And here's the thing I want to say. Um, all this outrage against Christopher Luxon for being a rabid white right-winger, um, if, if he is a rabid right-winger, then I am the Virgin Mary. <laughs> Well, I don't think he even eats um, right-wing chicken wings. 
No, he, he probably weeds those out. We'll just have left wings ones for dinner tonight, Amanda. Well, and this is the thing: is that national have been, as I keep saying, and and you know, centre left for a long time since probably to that two thousand and eight, um, when it was obvious, and all the things they brought in, like under it um, from the UN and stuff. But I would like to say this on that topic about the the paradigm between left and right. Um, if people want to talk right and left wing paradigms and the dummies often do this as if they mean anything now because they don't, it would behove people to remember that the, the defining line of what is left and right is the rule of law. And at the far right of the rule of law, you have jungle anarchy as in no laws at all. And on the far left, you have total law as in totalitarian laws like communism and fascism, two sides of the same coin, where there is no personal liberty to speak of. Um, America's founding fathers on that line of the rule of law were right of center, believing in the rule of law, but with a very guarded sway toward personal liberty. And that's the only form of moral government when such a government sees their own role as existing for the sake of securing and keeping man's natural rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that's all. Those are the three, those are the three things, not these made-up rights that we've got now, like the Human Rights Commission who said comes has come out and said everyone's entitled to a warm, healthy home yeah. as a human right. No. Well, now they now they see that as now they're tri- angling for there's a right to not be offended, hence they're targeting a free speech. Yeah. Um, no, no such rights like that exist. Um, but no government in the world see them sees themselves as there existing for the securing and the safeguarding of uh, natural individual rights anymore. And then we wonder why there's a monumental push toward tech slavery, economic slavery, and totalitarianism. Um, If governments can issue lockdown orders and mask your face orders, as we saw back in 2020, then they're demonstrating something that is very, very, very left, not anything close to centre-right of the rule of law. Well, that's the thing that, that, you know, in my introduction to the show earlier, I was talking about my journey coming from partisan politics involved, you know, very heavily on one side of politics. And I took two years off, you know, to, uh, after I had my stroke and I kind of recalibrated everything. And then, of course, we had the pandemic and all of the excesses that went on there with what I saw as the centre-right cheering on the centre-left and stomping all over our rights. And you know, I was visiting the the protest in Wellington that I banged into and caught up with and met a whole lot of people that I would never have done met before had I continued in the partisan politics of being only on one side. And I resolved back then that I was going to ch- change my ways for want of a better term. And as a result of the thinking that's gone in around that, I'm agnostic to whatever political party there is out there i'm looking for somebody or a political party that's going to uh, promote the exact things that you've just been talking about life liberty and the pursuit of happiness without the interference of the state in every microcosm every aspect of our life Mm. and 
one thing about the COVID nonsense that went on is how willingly Kiwis who were previously self-sufficient in, in their attitudes and uh, you know their can-do attitude just gave it all up to the government and said, save us, help us, yep. tell us what to do. And people just willingly did that. And I think there's a, a real problem now in society is that people have been conditioned because of the COVID stuff into expecting that every little aspect of their life will be protected, saved, um, uh, you know, the bad things, bad thoughts, bad words, bad ideas will be stopped somehow. Mm. But, well, that's interesting, Cam, because it is always the left, it has always been the left in the last 100 years of history that politicise every aspect of your life. And we saw that with communism and we saw that with fascism. You do not have a self that exists outside the political system. Um, and that's that's what makes it truly evil. You know, right-wing, traditional conservative right-wing politics allowed you to go and vote every three or four years, but have your own life where you really didn't have to take that much notice of anything because the, uh, the, uh, the status quo was freedom. Yeah, if we don't like this government, we'll vote you out. And now we've got this this what I call a homogenized view of politics where there's certain things that are agreed to that we mustn't discuss in any way, shape, or form because these are given as truths and they're nothing like truths, like men can be women and women can be men and all of this sort of nonsense. When, yeah. when in actual fact, if you call it out and you say, you know, that's, that's actually stupid, then you get attacked and then you get yeah. othered and then you get banned and then you get your bank accounts taken away and all of this because you did to say something that was contrary to the agreed narrative, whatever that narrative is. Yeah, well, and there are many agreed narratives that are going on um, that that we don't know until they hit us in the face. But the the politicization of every issue, right down to what you do in your bedroom, is a freak baby of the left, not the conservative right. I will I will go to my grave saying that. If you want freedom where you just want to live your life, mind your own business, be left alone, you need a conservative system in play which really does uphold those individual rights. And we are we are obviously going to have to fight tooth and claw to get that kind of life back. It's and not going not to be handed to, to us. Not going to be handed to us and it's not going to be delivered to us by the National Party either. No, because they're no, they're, they're completely, they are infected in the fundamental integrity of um, all their politics, which has been completely cannibalized by the left. It's kind of depressing. Let's talk about something that might be mildly more exciting. What's going on with NATO and Hipkins and all of that nonsense up there? Well, I'm not sure it will be less depressing, but... <laughs> <laughs> But we have to look reality squarely in the eye and be brave enough to um, take it. But, yeah, the up in Lithuania at the moment, of course, as we speak, the um, NATO conference is going on and everything coming out. I can't help but think I just see Russia having the whole of NATO over a barrel. 
um, nobody wants to see Ukraine suddenly become a member because that would be tantamount to all NATO member countries officially joining in an official war against Russia because of clauses like Article 5, mm. where we go one, we go all. Um, admitting Ukraine into NATO now, when they are still in a war and with extremely contested borders, would be like NATO saying, hey, everyone, we're now all at war with Russia. You okay with that? <laughs> and the moment... And at the moment, it's officially done on a proxy war level only. I mean, haw haw to that. Um, we watch NATO totally provoke Russia's invasion of the Ukraine by aggressively expanding eastward, um, systematically ignoring Russia's warnings over the last 10 to 20 years. And this represented a gross violation of the principle that had inspired the entire European security architecture since the 1970s. So in other words, NATO has just played an absolutely crucial role in unraveling Europe's security framework and midwifing the largest conflict on European soil since the Second World War. So, um, why, so why is Christopher Hipkins up at, in, I always thought it was ironic that the capital of Lithuania is Vilnius, which it could be vileness. Vilnius. 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 The language sounds Roman to me, Vilnius. Yeah. Originally, but, perhaps. But yeah, so why are we sucking up to NATO? We, we, we've got nothing to do with NATO. We're in the South Pacific. Well, so this is the really odd thing. Um, so much for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization which is meant to stay up in the North Atlantic. No, they're trying to pull that down into the Indo-Pacific and the South Pacific, of course, which is why Christopher Hipkins is up in Lithuania at the moment. We're not even a member. We are a partner and they're different. Um, look, they're doing this push all the time. Even Nigel Farage came out and said the other day that he worries that NATO is trying to put together a whole global army, um, which will be used as a global, uh, well, army, and not as a North Atlantic uh, treaty, which it has traditionally been. So NATO are expanding, expanding, expanding all the time. Um, Chris Hipkins is up there because, of course, New Zealand are going to have these military drills with Australia, and we saw all the materiel going in there last week. Remember we were talking about yeah. that? Yeah. Um, because they want drills with countries like Japan um, and South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, the US, and the UK. It's really just a resurgence of the East Bloc versus the West Bloc, isn't it? Yeah, it's something like that. And what worries me is that they're trying to set up this office in, and they will do it, in Tokyo that's a NATO office. And here's the weird thing, Cam. Do you know the main person who is against that? Who? It's Emmanuel Macron. Really? Yeah. So cause, you, that's because his little, his little empire in Frogland um, it, will, will be diminished by having this subsidiary office in Japan. Well, so because he see, ironically, I've never agreed with a single thing that Emmanuel Macron has ever said, but he is the one that is opposing Stoltenberg, the, the chief of NATO, over expanding 
uh, NATO's reach into the Indo-Pacific, it's Macron because, as he keeps pointing out, um, it's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, not the Indo-Pacific. And and their basis of a relationship with China is nothing militaristic. It's just been trade. And he wants to keep that trade flowing, as a lot of people do. It's um, the golden handcuffs, isn't it? Yes. Bamboo handcuffs, even. So here's the other odd thing is that they're obviously fingering uh, Ursula von der Leyen. I call her the Hillary Clinton of Germany because yeah. they want her to be the next chief of NATO. She's already been uh, Germany's defence minister. But she is a horrible woman. She is literally like a Hillary Clinton figure. And for the past two years, she's been tenaciously refusing to release the text messages that she exchanged um, with CEO Albert Buller of Pfizer, um, and she has done that also with all her NATO texts when she was Germany's defence minister. She won't release the texts, and she had them all deleted before she handed them back when right. she um, ended. Um, but if they are going to make her the next NATO uh, chief, and it's going to take a year because at the moment she's head of the EU, so that doesn't run out for another year. But if she gets that top job, we can guarantee that NATO's management under her will be about as transparent as Jacinda Ardern's government was to New Zealand. Right. So we haven't, so there's not a lot of hope there, is there? You know, we, we're looking at an expansion of hard power. This isn't soft power. This is hard power. It's, uh, it, when you're dealing with a war, yeah. yes, you're dealing with hard power. I mean, just to touch on that, though, we've we've seen the news that the United States is supplying cluster munitions to the Ukraine. Yeah. You know, and you've got these hawks in Congress and senators, particularly your favourite person, Lindsey Graham, who's mm -hmm. just pimping uh, cluster munitions, which are banned worldwide. It's actually a war crime to deploy them, but the United States is uh, exiting their expired munitions into the Ukraine. Unbelievable. I, I mean, because they, I know after Vietnam they were used, weren't they? And they can kill people and do kill people 50 years after a war where you've got a new, whole new political system and some poor kid. Um, because as I understand... Stands on this little cluster munition that's been lying around for 40 years. Because they're a bomb with... In a bomb. Yeah, there are lots of little tiny bombs within a bomb, right? So they can yeah. sit there in the dirt for 50 years and then uh, be blow up when some poor person stands on them 50 years later. Yeah, they're, they're actually they, more insidious than landmines because landmines are usually yeah. laid out with a pattern and there's documents and things like that when they come to clear the, the landmines. Most armies keep records of it. But with cluster munitions, they're used indiscriminately and they can be yeah. anywhere. But but look how it shows you how desperate they are to keep propping up this Ukrainian war against Russia. Um, I firmly believe that if that was, I, I don't know the future. We we don't know. We, I think we're all going to be dragged into something terrible. But um, Russia will win that war if it was just left between the Ukraine and Russia. Russia would win. 
Um, and at the moment, you've got all these people like Lindsey Graham and the Ursula von der Leyen's of this world and the Boris Johnson's of this world propping them up to keep fighting. I've never seen anything more disgustingly immoral in my life as this prop up of the Ukrainian war, which has just been utterly devastating and they have no chance of winning. But you know the, the, there's no reverse, there's no handbrake and there's no reverse gear. So what they've started, I don't there's know. No exit, there's no exit ramp either. From, no, there's no exit ramp, exactly. They've gone barreling down to, towards warfare with Russia with, as you say, no handbrake, you know, um, no ability to reverse, and all the exit ramps are blocked with tanks. Yeah, right. They they can't get out. So, And here's the other thing I wanted to say regarding Zelensky is that, you know, you see his anger burst out every now and then because um, with everything that's unfolding and the fact that they don't, the NATO heads don't at the moment want Ukraine um, ushered into full membership because that would be an open that would just a be, war. yeah it, totally a third world war um so you've got Zelensky sitting there um and he's he's going look you all pushed me into this war with a nuclear armed Russia on our border under the promise of future NATO membership now damn well admit me into your protectionist little club and they keep saying later 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 and now they're saying, no, sorry, not yet, not until the fighting's over. That's um, that's uh, Schultz's position. Yeah. And um, and then there's the issue of the contested borders. I, I can only think of one other precedent where a country was admitted into NATO, and that was back in 1955, and it was when West Germany, uh, when they still laid claim to East Germany, but the objective of NATO as a defence alliance against the Soviet system was a mu was much starker, and there was no fighting. It was over by then. So that they did admit West Germany into NATO with contested borders. Yeah. Um, but for them to do that at the moment with the state of Crimea, Donetsk, um, and the other Russian Russian majority Russian speaking areas, um, yeah, no one wants them in NATO. So. Zelensky, to me, it's a sign that Zelensky has deeply been used and he was stupid enough and coke-addicted enough to go along with it, thinking that this would be a war that they could win against Russia. What a dumb idea. Well, I mean, what do you expect from a comedian turned politician? Yeah. But the I thing mean, is, with I mean, I don't have it's any tragic. Dog. I don't have any dog in this fight. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the Ukrainians and the Russians are as bad as each other, and I think we should stay well away from it. And I'm just aghast that Christopher Hipkins is up there toadying to NATO, which is basically signaling tacit approval of whatever NATO wants to do uh, in Ukraine and other areas around the place. And, you know, Helen Clark, I, I doubt Helen Clark would have got herself involved in this. You know, she, I doubt Winston Peters would have got involved in this uh, in the way that that we're sort of lurching into this arrangement at the same time we're trying to um, be nice to the Chinese as well. It's not going to work. Eventually we have to pick a side. We can't play all the sides. It, it's, it, it's a dangerous game that they're playing and I don't think they're equipped within the, within the Labour government or any of these support parties. I don't think any of them are equipped to deal with the uh, geopolitical 
information, let alone geopolitical decisions that they're making? Well, I mean, Cam, uh, we all watched the fall of Afghanistan, didn't we? Well, we all predicted it would happen exactly as it did. Well, to be honest with you, I didn't predict that. Um, I knew, I knew, I knew what Trump was trying to do. I knew that the drawdown that he and Mike Pompeo were trying to do was gradual and thoughtful, with a focus on America first, which you know it should it should be. But when that actually happened, in the in the most ramshackle, disgusting way, all you got was the rise of the Taliban. Um, which, uh, I mean, the Taliban, you, you couldn't find a more br- brutal regime on earth than the Taliban. And that now has, but but at the time when that happened, my point was who the hell would follow NATO into anything after watching that nation-building bullshit in Afghanistan and then a withdrawal that haphazard. And and remember when- It was very had- rapid. It was, it was so rapid. I mean, you had Biden saying, well, we're not going to see people climbing into helicopters on buildings like in Saigon. And then (laughs) in the very next screen was the same helicopter that was used in Saigon was was evacuating people out of the embassy in in Afghanistan, Kabul. You know, it was... And planes with people singing on it, sitting on their wings, dropping. it It was ironic and terribly sad at the same time. But 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 to to my point exactly is that NATO have proved themselves to be beyond corrupt, beyond incompetent. Who the hell would fight them and follow them into any war? And now they're talking about expanding into the Indo-Pacific, and by default, that will mean the South Pacific. No, 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 not under this kind of uh, corrupt leadership. Absolutely not. If NATO says that they've got your back, you better look behind you to see who else is there going to help you out because yeah. it isn't going to be them eventually. Yeah. If it becomes politically expedient to chuck you under the bus, then they'll do that ex- exactly as, as they predicted. Before. Yeah, because Fran- when, when they withdrew from Afghanistan, France and people like Macron were shocked. They, I mean, they America forgot, Biden forgot that they had allies that they actually had to talk to that were also in Afghanistan. Well, I, th- I think you just finished that sentence with Biden forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> Look, um, Olivia, we could, uh, we could talk forever about politics and geopolitical things. This is d- designed as a, as a short segment. Okay. <laughs> but... Um, uh, I think we'll do this as a regular a regular segment moving forward where we get people like you on on board and we can have a one-on-one chat about anything you feel like. And uh, I appreciate Excellent. you coming on the first show and uh, hopefully there'll be plenty more where this came from. Okay, well, thanks very much, Cam, for asking me and um, I look forward to hearing to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree oh, with on every topic. And I yeah, think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how mm. after all this division and after all this separation do we end up bringing people together again and what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? 
Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. As always, Olivia has some interesting perspectives on the political life here in New Zealand and around the world. We're in no doubt that Olivia thinks that National's campaign is weak-kneed. Just how desperate is Luxon to rope in his wife to help him campaign? And what a complete mess the whole NATO-driven war in Ukraine is. Share your opinions on Olivia's thoughts by texting 2057 or email inbox at realitycheck.radio. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Coming up after a short break, we see what Rebel News journalist Avi Yemeni has to say about his new book, Rebel from the Start. Just a wee reminder that you can catch The Crunch every Thursday from 4pm right here on RCR. And remember, you can check out all the past interviews on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for... A reality check. Reality check. RCR. Reality check radio. Rational discussion. Common sense. And open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. So with me, with me this afternoon on The Crunch is provocateur, former soldier, former politician even, uh, journalist, and uh, a rebel from the start, Avi Yemeni. Welcome to The Crunch. Thanks for having me, mate. Good to be here. Well, you know, I've been reading your book, Avi, and it's uh, it's been a real eye opener. Um, but before we crack into some of the uh, some of the details, crunch some of those details in that book. Um, I, I'm just want to give listeners a, an idea about what drives you, what makes you stick cameras in people's faces, politicians, and the elites at Davos, and 
all of those. So what what drives you to get out of bed in the morning and say, right, I'm going to go and get a story here? Well, no one else is going to do it. So that's what we've learned over the last few years. I guess I started in 2017. So it's been five long years. COVID has been a big part of that. But even before COVID, what we noticed is that there's a gap in the media. If mm. something doesn't suit the narrative, then the mainstream media are not going to run it. And, uh, you know, that's where companies like Rebel News, that's where we've we've started from. We've realised that there is that gap. And you don't have to look any further than something like the Russia-Ukraine conflict. It doesn't matter which side of mm. that conflict or whether you don't you, you don't have any side. If you don't... Just trying to feel, report the facts. If you just want to know the facts, <laughs> well, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to get that because what journalism has done in 2023 is they've just cancelled one side. So mm. instead of sending reporters into Russia... And to question uh, Putin and the Putin regime and the government or officials, what they've done is they've just demonized everyone and everything. And they've made out that the other side is just this heroic, lovely people that don't have any bad Nazis or whatever and no oligarchs. It's just a completely, it's, it's our side against their side. And if you want to get any sort of balanced view of it, well, you need to actually hear from both sides. Um, so our job is to bring you the other side of that story and, and that the side that the media doesn't want to show. That's probably what drives me most is talking to the people in the places about the things that the mainstream media won't cover. That's how you kind of got started, isn't it? When you were serving in the Israeli Defence Forces, you started making videos and and um, things for your business back in Australia, which kind of got you in front of the camera. Well, it wasn't it wasn't even much the camera back then. It was more um, so I talk about it in the book. It's more about uh, just posting on Facebook. You know, we, mm. we had we had it was when I came back from the army and we had two of two. You know, one of the most well known gym brands in the country because we we were. You know, we had a, a big following mm. and it was pretty high profile. So it, it was actually called IDF training. So individual diet and fitness, but also it was a Krav Maga gym. So it was, yeah. you know, trained with ex-IDF members. So our whole brand was about, uh, you're learning Krav Maga, which is the Israeli army self-defense system. So when I saw reporting on ABC about the current conflict in Gaza and I saw how one-sided and how, untrue you know it was my first kind of um uh, it, it, i was it was like i was meeting fake news for the first time and seeing how re they report from a a biased position you know it was like the journalists made up their mind as to what they wanted you to believe in that scenario and as somebody had actually served exactly where they were reporting from in gaza i knew that it was completely false and biased, the reporting. And mm. we, I started using our Facebook pages for the business um, to, to voice from firsthand experience the other side of that story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you're right. That's how I did start. And, you know, the rest is history. Well, some of that history, though, is the, the uh, collusion of the New Zealand government 
immigration and the police to prevent you coming to New Zealand to cover a protest that probably only had about a thousand people at it. Uh, it was. It, it's funny because look, a lot of that is thanks to you, Cam, because that first initial uh, Interpol leak was given to you guys at um, at your at your site, and it showed clearly that the government and the police, the state was essentially uh, essentially colluding with anyone they could to try ban me before even knowing I was coming. They were colluding with the media. The, the, you know what was funny about that whole story is that it all started with the New, New Zealand Herald. New Zealand Herald, yeah. They're, they're un, no byline. They're anonymous writer. Yeah. You know, but, does a hit job against Davi Yemeni, pulling up all the things that are in that you cover in your book, you know, the Tommy Robinson quote, um, about being Australia's most proudest Nazi, you know, while you're Jewish standing Nazi. There, Jewish Nazi, yeah, we're wearing a kipper and um, standing there talking to a microphone. You know, there was a reason why they didn't have a byline to that article. Um, and but the interesting thing is, if you notice, they ran that article, they ran that story back then based on a rumour from Chantelle Baker on yeah. her telegram mm -hmm. that I was coming and it was clearly designed to pressure and to help the government ban me yeah. and authorities ban me. And it worked at the time because even within the um, Interpol and the communications, with the internal communications, we saw essentially copy and paste from that article. In fact, when I was at the airport, they said... Word for word. It was word for word. Well, well, the lady on the phone, I forgot her name, but when she was giving me the news that I'm banned, she was saying she read the article and she was referring to this New Zealand Herald article. And now, though, fast forward to now, where I've personally announced I'm coming. So it's no longer a rumour. Yeah. And I'm saying they've overturned that unlawful ban created by the New Zealand Herald. Yeah. You would think that the New Zealand Herald that was so triggered by the rumor of me potentially coming. Totally uh, silent, aren't they? For for to cover an event as a journalist, are suddenly really quiet that I am coming and I'm saying I'm coming to launch my book. So not even to not even for a a to cover an event as a journalist, suddenly they're really quiet. Why do you think that is, Cam? <laughs> well, you know, this is the thing that, you know, when we released that memo and everyone, the politicians, the uh, the, the media especially, uh, people on Twitter went out of their way to try and disprove that memo. Instead of it looking at the story, hello, here we have the police deciding that they don't want someone coming to New Zealand, so they're begging the Australian Federal Police for some information to help them stop you coming. That's the story, but the media pursued, oh, the memo's fake. The people on Twitter accused me of fabricating this, this communication instead of being outraged that that immigration and police were trying to stop someone coming to New Zealand when we've had, you know, people with actually far worse records than yours come to New Zealand, Mike Tyson and people like that, you know, actual. You mean actual violent people. Actual uh, and, violent people. And, and, and isn't that funny, a bit like the New Zealand Herald 
when they didn't get their way, when it turns out that you didn't fabricate it and it turned out that it was authenticated and it was true. And in fact, the freedom of information requests that followed proved showed it. Yeah. proved it and proved that it was far worse, far more sinister from the beginning, the entire way. Suddenly that those same people that their entire story was that you faked it. Yeah. So, and isn't it interesting that they had to they had to say you faked it because it, it was clearly so outrageous. You know, why would they care if it was real or fake if it didn't matter? It obviously mattered a lot, but then when it was authenticated, suddenly they all, all, went, all went silent. Um, and that's, you know, I feel bad for them because at the end of the day, yes, this was against what they perceive as their political opponent, mm. but they should probably read history uh, and learn that if uh, if you think that's good for your political opponent, just wait till it happens to you because if they can do it to me, they can they can and will do it to you just when it's that's the right. others in power. That, that's exactly right. This is the thing where... I believe uh, that the media in New Zealand, Australia, Canada, United States have, have you know, everyone used to mock Donald Trump because he said the media were the enemy of the people. But, but, but that was kind of true because they've got their own agendas that they're pushing. You know, you've got stuff, for example, that touts themselves as New Zealand's largest news website that won't tolerate any sort of narrative that is contrary to the green way of thinking and climate change and all of that. They just, we, you know, they've even announced when we're not going to publish any contrarian views. It's, it's not, they say it's not responsible. It's not responsible. But when you get media making decisions like that, and what else does it apply to? COVID's a classic example. You saw it in Australia. You know, you were fighting it in Australia. Anything you said would be, you know, censored or banned. I think, I think you guys had it far worse, to be fair. In Australia, uh, as much as the establishment tried to take me on, they failed and we grew through that entire COVID um, era. How many times did you get arrested, Darby? Uh, I, got, I got three and we won all that in court, but that's how we won. That's how yeah. we beat them. But... In New Zealand, the the media is through those different funds is bought and paid for. Um, it's no secret, and you see how that plays out. My my band is a classic example of that, and I I often say because I understand why the media doesn't want me there. They don't want a repeat of what's happened in Australia mm. um, with regards to Rebel News. You know, essentially taking away all the eyeballs from from their platforms because at the end of the day you got to remember these media companies they're businesses they may be state sponsored uh, so you know they scratch but, the, the state back these lockdowns and things like that they, they kind of made you and rukshan didn't they i mean rukshan um, was a wedding photographer before that and, and look I, th I think it depends what circles like before before covid you know i was very involved in the in covering the hong kong protests so in hong kong we were superstars but in Australia, in Australia, New Zealand, and, and across the world, when it came to the COVID narrative, yes, certainly um, it did. And and I don't think it's just me. I think also the mainstream media, they love, that's what's so, to me, crazy 
that New Zealand's press got all this funding from the government to help them through COVID when COVID was the one time any media, didn't matter what side you were on, every media had the highest traffic probably in, in history. Yeah. Yes, uh, we certainly gained a lot of traffic and we stole a lot of their potential traffic and that's what they was that's what the New Zealand press didn't want um happening in New Zealand but everybody was glued to their screens or their you know whatever and they were crying device. poor they were crying poor and then, then, then when we get something like you coming here and the media are in lockstep with the government and you know that's what the Official Information Act documents showed in the in there, the cosy relationship between media, immigration, police, and the government in this whole story about you. It, it, it actually revealed an awful lot. I mean, they were quite familiar in their communications. It was quite revealing when we we got into their heads and saw them, their high, virtual high five, yay, we stopped them coming, you know, we did a good job there, boys, and... I wonder what those people who are high-fiving that now think that you're coming here, you know, in August. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to be a fly on the wall, but it's, it. you know, I think that those um, those internal communications showed so much and showed how corrupt your system is in New Zealand. The fact that there is this um, uh, unholy relationship between the media and the government, and then on top of that, how um, institutions like the Im- New Zealand Immigration think that they're above the law, and yeah. they dragged it out. They dragged it out forever. That's the thing. Well, it's is, almost a year, isn't it? It was uh-huh. almost a year, and the fact is they knew from day one that it was unlawful, that I did not meet the threshold, and we know they knew that because – we saw the internal communications yep. with the Australian Federal Police. So there was no grounds ever to stop me. I'm grateful that they did because this is so much more fun than coming <laughs> to that one silly, you know, uh, not silly. But you would that have been one. here for maybe 48 hours and yeah, there was made a, a couple of videos and flown home and that would there have been was the one, end of it. It was one protest that ended up being a bit of a fizzle um, and it, you know, I would have been in and out, run a few stories, and it would have been over and done with. Now, I get to come to Auckland and Wellington and, and you know, um, run book launches, and it's going to be so much more fun. Um, and and they're, they're going to be outraged by that because they turned something from me just telling other people's stories, which I'll probably still I'm, – I'm hoping to squeeze that in as well. But they, they turned it in – Turned it from just me telling other people's stories about general stuff in New Zealand. That Are you telling your story? To now me, to, they've given me the platform to tell my story. And ironically, based on all the lies, you know, I get to, to answer all the lies that the New Zealand Herald used without a byline, repeated without a byline in order to convince the government to ban me. That's the craziest part of all of this story. And remember, the New Zealand Herald started all of this in that initial article that was then used by the uh, in New Zealand immigration over the phone to tell me that that was the article they were just commenting. And then when we, when we look through their internal communicate communications, it was repeated time and time again, parts of that article. They're all the, all, they're, they're basically 
all the lies about me packed into one um, article, which was designed to pressure and not only pressure, but validate the government's um, decision to, to ban me. And remember the New Zealand Herald ran that article based on a rumor from Chantel Baker's telegram um, in order, again, like I said, to pressure the government, to pressure immigration. And also it's to, to make the government know it's okay if 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 you ban him, we'll support that decision. That's yeah. really what it was. It was a message to the government. It was a signal. Yeah. It was a signal. Do it, and if you don't do it, we're going to keep going on about all these things that you why you should have done it. But if you do it, we're going to be like, yeah, good on you. And the government went with it, and they helped each other. They covered for each other, patted each then, other on the back, high fived each other. And then fast forward to now, where I'm not only you know, coming in to report on a, an event and they yeah. can't use my propensity to incite other pe- people with other views. That was the, you know, You're coming to tell your story. I'm coming to tell my story that they don't want anyone to hear, hence their article without a byline. It, it, it It's, that is the biggest ad for this. Their article is what this, what my book and my story answers. It's the truth that they don't want you to hear. But suddenly the New Zealand Herald is so quiet. It's a bit like um, when when you revealed that into uh, that 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 leaked Interpol email um, after it was proven that it was when it was validated and it was authenticated. Suddenly, they all went silent. All the people that were so angry that you were making up something so outrageous. Well, when the yeah. outrageous thing ended up being true, That's suddenly right. they all went silent. And, and you would think that the New Zealand Herald would be above that, you know. Okay, you can still hate me, but hey, isn't it newsworthy? The guy that you were so outraged over a rumor that was coming is coming but, now. But they do that with me all the time, Mavi, because during the first lockdown we had in New Zealand, the same source that gave me the the memo, your memo, the Interpol memo, they gave me some internal documents that showed that Crown Law had advice, given advice to the police that the lockdown was illegal. Mm. And we we ran that, you know, very early on. And again, we were accused of making it up. Oh no, they made he's made it up. That's just not true. The, it's all legal. Stay at home, or we'll or we'll arrest you. But it was illegal. They had advice to say that what Ardern's regime had done in cahoots with the police was illegally lock us down. But they said that I made it up. And when it was no longer tenable to say that I made it up, because I did an official information act request using the specific document code that was issued by Crown Law. So now it was, oh, no, okay, you didn't make it up. Um, it's a draft. And so, uh. then they, so they went through that. But then there was a court case. There was one, you know, brave individual who took the government to court over these documents and proved that, yes, the first lockdown was illegal and that what Cam Slater had written was true. But yeah. they, but the media all went down. They didn't weren't interested in that. They were going down the narrative. But as you say, you know, you're coming back to New Zealand. You're going to launch your book. Tell us about what that book's about, Avi. That's what people well, want to know, the, the, the real Avi, isn't it? Well, that's what the book is. It's, you know, for years we've heard 
others tell you about me, including the New Zealand Herald, and they've always got these little talking points that they've cherry-picked from my life, some of them completely false, some of them completely out of context, you know, some of them some of them laughable. Um, but it's the time has come well. I'm finally able to talk about it all. And I'm telling, I'm saying to It's people, everything though, isn't it, Abby? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, you, it's my you, whole story. Yeah, you cover some, you know, pretty torrid things that have happened in your life, you know, your addiction to drugs, you know, the 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 case that um, the media likes to bash you about, you know, where they try and call you a wife beater and all of those sorts of things. Everything. And even, I, yep. you know, even, you know, some of your younger years how, how many how many how many children in your family were there avi i'm one of 17 so yeah i'm number 10 of 17 it, it's been a wild ride and i think um so you've been fighting since since you were born <laughs> just for attention, <laughs> for attention. Yes, I <laughs> that's right that's right um i, I bet look, you learned to eat fast uh i've i've learned now to slow down but yes that's it's funny you picked that one up because i get in i got into a lot of trouble about that, um, about learning to slow down when I oh, eat. It's interesting. I've got a, I've got a, a mate of mine, and he tells me about you can tell somebody's upbringing by how they eat fish and chips. And uh, he said, uh, if you were in a poor household and you were brought up with you know eating fish and chips, you always ate the chips first because there was always a piece of fish for everybody. Yeah, but if you ate your fish first, there was no chips left for you, and, and so it's his little way of working out how people's upbringing, and that's why I touched on. I kind of picked that up from your book that you you had to be quick in a family of seventeen. If you weren't quick, you're going to get hungry real fast. Yeah, look, I don't think you'd be hungry, but yes, you, you'd get you'd go missing, or you won't get what uh, I, I think the fish and chip. Uh, story is probably a great example because that's that's the truth um but it's funny nobody's ever said that to me and and it is a, a true fact that um all of us eat super fast <laughs> and uh bless my wife she's slowed me down but um yeah i think that the whole book is a i would call it a pretty brutally honest um story you know, with warts and all, it's, you know, not, not, as I say, not all of it's pretty, but it's the truth. And it's, it's not what they tell you about me. It's not, I think at the end of it, you realize it puts into context. Yeah. Me. And even all those horrible things you've heard about me, it puts them into perspective and puts them in their right place. Those things that, you know, the complete lies. Yeah, it helps round out the who is Arvi, what is Arvi, what drives Arvi. That's the impression that I got from reading your book is that here was a person who was driven from an early age and had some pretty serious challenges. You know, you were you were addicted to drugs. Um, you're probably running with the wrong crowd in Melbourne. And yet you saw an obligation or a duty to serve in the Israeli defense forces. It probably was 
from what I can read in the book, Avi, it looks like you were, that was like last chance saloon. I need to go and get straightened down and the idea for the ones who are going to do it. Is yeah, that pretty what? much. Yeah, it is. Um, I think, you know, it was, a, it was a journey, but I th- there was two sides to it. I, I obviously it was something I always wanted to do. Um, why, why is that? Well, I think I had, Firstly, my two older brothers and my cousins and my uncle who, you know, my uncle who passed away in the army. But it's a sense of duty, I think, as being um, Jews in the safety of the West, in the safety of Australia, you always, in the back of your mind, you think about, especially when you have family, so much family there, you feel some sort of duty to help um, protect them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, on a personal level, of course, I knew I needed discipline in my life and I hit that rock bottom and I talk about the rock, you know, the day that I hit rock bottom Yeah. and I knew that this is the time, um, this is going to make or break me. And I think, uh, I think, or I, I think I had a few of those moments in my but journey. But you didn't do it easy though, Avi, did you? I mean, you, you decided that you'd wanted to serve in the Galani Brigade. Well, right. that's, yeah, that's right, because that's Please. where all my family go. And if you're going to do things, I think a constant theme through the book is not doing things in halves. So mm. if I'm going to join the Israeli army, I'm going to join um, the, the Golani Brigades. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to join, you know, I'm not going to go there and become a mechanic. Yeah. So you're a fighter. You joined, you're in the infantry. Absolutely. And you're, and you're wound up in Gaza. In a Gaza, well, I was I was first uh, in the beginning of the of my service. Uh, I was in Lebanon, yeah, um, and then, but most of my uh, deployment was in the Gaza Strip. Yeah, but but again, you didn't even speak Hebrew, did you? Uh, very broken. So my Hebrew was uh, ancient Hebrew, biblical Hebrew. So it's a bit like if you think of somebody coming to New Zealand and speaking in Shakespeare English, yeah, trying yeah. trying to get around like that. That's how I must have sounded to um, Israelis. And I remember their faces. I'll tell you a story <laughs> that's not in the book is um, when, when I, you know, I have lots of my, lots of cousins there that are my age. And I remember when I got there, I, I was hanging out with my cousin, a couple of my cousins, their sisters and, and their friends. And, um, you know, it was probably, the first week that I was in Israel and the friends turned to their, to my cousin and said, you know, not, not when the next day when I wasn't around and said, Oh, you know, they were talking about me and essentially it, they thought that I was special that I had some sort of learning difficulty or something because you kind of are special. Yeah. Look, so that's why this story is probably not, that's why I never made the book because I am no, but (laughs) they thought I had some sort of learning difficulty or something. And that's why I was talking like that. And they didn't realize that I was just Australian. Just Australian. Cause I I look Israeli. And so they, you know, they didn't picture it. And then, you know, to them, an Aussie would be blue hair, blue eyes, blonde hair, white. Um, so they weren't, they weren't expecting someone that looked like my family, Yemen. And, and then on top of that, I was speaking ancient kind of Hebrew, which was really weird. Um, 
And so then it all clicked and it was, we all laughed about it um, over and over again. And they often make fun, made fun of me in the army. That's how I learned Hebrew is, you know, people mocking me, but that's, that's something I get, I, I guess through the book you also learn is that I like to have a laugh at everything, including myself. Yeah. And I, I've never been someone that gets uh, easily offended. So uh, the army days were fun. They, they they mocked the hell out of me and my accent. Um, those those days in the army. This is just to put it in context. Right, we're talking about here in two thousand five, two thousand six, aren't we? Yeah, two thousand five to two thousand eight. Yeah, yeah. So that's when the Israeli army were having to change a few things around because they'd rolled out the Makava tank, but found that in Lebanon they had a few issues with a few soldiers getting injured with those tanks. Yeah. Well, yeah, Lebanon was a was what we considered to be a failure, mm. um, a, a failed war. And, again, to put that into perspective, for Israel, a failed war means, you know, oh. we lost 100 and something, I think, whereas um, we took out 10 times that. But, but the being, objectives and goals weren't met in the end. Weren't met, and, you know... Israel doesn't it, uh, because it's such a tiny state and it's a it, we're fighting you know we were fighting for existence to, for our survival mm. it doesn't matter if we lose a tenth that's not how the war should go so it was that was a, a, a not a great war for Israel and um, so there was a lot of training and I talk about that in the book as well mm. and um, then Gaza was it, it was right as the disengagement from Gaza. So right after uh, Israel pulled out of Gaza, pulled out of Gaza and gave it back to, to or gave it to the Palestinians to, uh, you know, it was land for peace under the, under the promise of, of peace and, and all, all Israel got was rockets and terror attacks. And that's when um, we were going in there. Like when I, when, when I first got to Israel, when the, that disengagement from Israel happened. My cousins were living in Gaza, uh, the disengagement from Gaza. So my cousins were actually living in Gaza. And right. one of my cousins was a high serving, high ranking um, special forces police. So border police um, officer. And he, you know, he was kicked out of his own home. And so it was quite personal and going yeah. in there and seeing what they did to the land that was given to them for peace. Well, the first thing they did was they, it was Hamas versus Fatah. So they killed their own. Yep, and then they turn, and then once they were literally once they grabbed throw, control, of they Gaza. were throwing them off buildings. Each side was throwing each other off buildings in Gaza, and then once Hamas took control of it, um, then they started targeting Israel, and that's where that's where I was stationed, and that's when I was stationed there, and it was a it was a crazy time. And and you actually saw combat, so yeah. you went in the rear with the gear. You were. In there, in fact, in 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 the book, you describe one incident where you kind I of shot myself. Yeah, <laughs> you kind of lost your mind, and you you your rifle didn't work, and it, it all locked up. But you carried on in that. I mean, I read that story, and I thought, wow, yeah, you know, I never knew that about you before. And um, to actually just press on, even though your rifle wasn't working anymore. Well, I don't think I had much of a choice. It was that, or <laughs> give up and get shot and die. But you know, I, I don't think, I think, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that a loud mouth, little 
troublemaker like me thinks he's going to go some one way when it all hits. And it gets real, real so, fast. Uh, and it gets real, real fast. And suddenly my big mouth uh, was shut, <laughs> shut <laughs> real, real quickly. Harvey uh, shut tight. Speechless by fear. Yeah, that, that was, that was, that would have been a, uh, a, a, an honest headline for that scenario. But I guess it, like many things in my life, it put things into perspective and, and it taught me so much and it made me who I am today. And yeah. whilst I'm not proud of every moment and every story, um, there's still I'm pretty, ha I'm pretty happy how the work in progress known as Avia Mini is going. God, who talks about themselves in third person. <laughs> but just, just to round out the, the story about Gaza and the military, you were a marksman, right? Yep. You 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 got additional training, better weapons, and you were a marksman. So yes. You, so you were learning to hit your target. Yeah. So yes, uh, when you say better weapons, I just it was better scopes. Really, yeah. it was a day and and a night scope, especially yeah. back then. I, I reckon today, I was I was just there. My nephew, my little nephew, I can't believe he he, he just finished the army and he was in Golani as well. Yeah. He was actually in my same thing. Um, the, I, I, oh, I, I think most of them have now the, the great gear, whereas in our days it was specific. So, you know, I'd get a Trigicon yeah, a an scope, M4. and, and an M4 where, and then an, a big, this huge night vision scope, which I reckon today they probably have it much smaller. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what were you asking? No, just I was just noting that you were a marksman. You weren't just oh, an, yeah. you weren't just an ordinary, you know, grunt. Uh, my, my, mind you, that that was the best job to have. I <laughs> yeah. I, to, I told my nephew, you know, you should you should go for that. Yeah, because um, well, if you don't, most of the other gear. Firstly, you see the most action. That's the yeah. that's the you know even when patrolling, you're always the number one they call because yeah. you because you can have an accurate shot. So even if it's firing warning shots, they want accuracy to ensure that you don't accidentally shoot someone. Yeah. Um. And, and then also when it is a terrorist, you, you you're often the first person they call to um, yeah. neutralize them. So it is the best gig from, you know, quote unquote, an action point of view, but also the gear that you got to carry. So <laughs> They call it a pakal. I don't know what it, I don't know what that actually translates, but your pakal is your job. So you know, yeah. if you're the, if you're the if you're the water man, you've got to carry all that water on your back. Yeah. But what? It doesn't give you more action. It just slows you down. If you're the radio man, yeah. So you've got. Yeah, to be if you're the machine manner. gunner, you've got extra. Yeah, the machine gunner. The machine gunner has this huge machine gun, which is fun for the three minutes that he gets to fire away if he can <laughs> handle it. Um, but it is the worst piece of equipment to have to lug around. So the sharp, the sharpshooter or the, or the marksman has the best gig. Um, yeah. It's nothing like a sniper. Snipers work on their own and it sucks. I could never do that. I have too many ants in my pants. I would not yeah. be able to sit in not a one position enough. for three days without, um, you know, killing my number two. So In uh, Melbourne under Dictator Dan, it got pretty torrid there, didn't it? Uh, With the armed police and the... I think the world witnessed what happened there, and um, I think it's a 
it's a dark mark on our state's history. I don't think it'll be remembered as um, uh, as Dan Andrews would like it to be remembered. You know, he he. he I think he frames it as saved all the lives of everybody in Victoria. He Same was just under our doing. Yeah, he's the he's the male Jacinda, or I don't know. These days, you can't assume they're either genders. But you I needed would, bodyguards at that time, didn't you? At the protests, yeah, yeah. Well, we did. <laughs> we I did for almost two reasons. I did because obviously, as you know, not everyone likes me. And I think those I of you who are, that. I can't. me neither. I think my phone need to read my book just as much as you know. There's, I actually think everyone does, except for the blind haters that are just um, that it's their hate for me is politically motivated. So it is essentially that they hate my existence because I stand for everything they don't, and they're just groomers. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah, but I'm talking about the general public. Uh, whether you like or dislike my politics or, um, you know, often uh, probably the people I want most to read it are those who liked some of my work. Um, you know, uh, people often walk up to me and say, Hey, I really, I really like some of the stuff you did. I don't agree with everything. I'm like, mate, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I go, what did I say yesterday? <laughs> so no, but yeah, the, the people that I want really most importantly to read it are those that, follow my work that and um they've been bombarded for years with negative uh reporting about aspects in my life by people that are bad faith actors that have that haven't to be honest a lot of the people that originally started the reporting knew the bigger context of any story they were reporting, but they cherry pick parts that is easy yeah. to to sell in a headline. Javier Many pleads guilty to assaulting ex-wife. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Spoiler alert. I did do that, but yeah. I did it. Um, I pled guilty to a crime that I didn't commit because I put my kids first because as much as I knew that that was going to be the headline, I really wanted to see my kids. And while I had an open domestic violence matter, the I wasn't going to be able to get my kids. So I needed to close that matter by pleading guilty to a summary offence. Um, Doing what it takes, isn't it? It's like what you did uh, in, uh, uh, in Israel. In, absolutely. In I, never, I, I never had to go back in time. Well, it depends how far back I could rewind. But if I could only get back to that point, I would do the same thing because guess what? My kids matter more to me and my relationship with my kids matters more to me and the well-being of my kids matters more to me than what you think of me because of some reporting from some journalists that um, hated my guts and found something they could weaponize in my life to, to bring me down. But what I would say to those people that have read that message or heard all those stories about me for so long and they're, they're in two minds. They think, oh, I really like some of the work he's done, but these stories sound horrible. Read my book and make up your own mind. It's, a bit, your- of a, it's a bit of a tearjerker in some parts, Harvey, I've got to say. You know, it it actually moved me, some of the things that you've written in that book. Well, I was being honest, and it's uh, that's the thing. Uh, I, I know that there are parts in my life. It was hard for me to write. Um, but I think when when you read it with an open heart and an open mind, you realize how horrible the, the legacy media and, 
and my detractors, those who knew and know better, you realize how horrible the whole system and how rigged it is that when they want to bring a person down, when they want to shoot the messenger, it's not that hard um, because everybody has stories in their lives that if you cherry picked half of it from somebody else, um, you can really paint somebody in a bad light. And that's what they've done. And in my case, they did it whilst I couldn't respond and they mm. knew that. So they had free reign until now. And so now. Here's your uh, story. This is my story and it's yeah. in my words. And, and do you know what? Read my story and read their reporting again. And then I bet you'll have that little light bulb moment, that click where it goes, now it all makes sense. Because that, old, that old saying about you should walk a, a mile in your opponent's shoes to understand what, what they're about, you know? Yeah, but look, I also don't blame. I'm talking about that same group of people that um, that have liked my work but felt like they couldn't uh, get past what they were being told about me because I'd never – defended myself so why the hell should they mm. but um so I, I don't really blame people that have have taken it but i hope that this opens people's eyes to the fact that when the media is working so hard to ruin somebody's reputation ask yourself why and then ask yourself why that person isn't defending themselves because it, um silence isn't necessarily an admission of guilt no. Silence may be that because the person has no choice, especially on these sorts of issues. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I don't blame people that judged me based on the stories they were told because they weren't given the other side of the story. Now I'm saying to them, read the other side of the story, make up your own mind. And I bet you if you read the story and you read the entire story, because like I've said a few times in this discussion is I don't hide anything. I tell you the stuff that is that um, may shock you. That's pretty horrific. But um, everything that they have, what, what I can guarantee is everything that they have told you about me is a complete lie. Yeah. And I'm I none know, of the, I, I know exactly I, where you're coming from. I am, I am many, thing. I am many things. I'm just not what they say that I am. So let's just crunch that a little bit. Before we wrap up, do you think it's possible that these attacks on you by the mainstream media come out of a form of embarrassment that during this time of COVID in particular, they lay down and didn't stand up for the people? I, look, I think it's just a tool to discredit me. They've done it even before COVID. You know, the Jewish Nazi thing was before COVID. Mm. It, it, there's always been something. Uh, I think when that story with my ex-wife, um, when that played out, they found the perfect thing that they could use that I couldn't answer. Yeah, no one likes a wife just, beef, do they? You know? Nobody, <laughs> nobody does. And um Guess what? I that, that that was probably the one that stung. It definitely stung the most. One because I couldn't answer it, but two because it's so false. And three, I hate wife beaters more than most people. Um, and and it's and it's funny because often these people that are are, are um social justice warriors behind their so brave behind their screens. You know, I, I'm often the one that will confront 
uh, violent people directly with a camera in their face. These people, they're so brave at home, you know, mm. but it's, uh, disseminating lies about just a political rival. They don't care about my ex-wife. They don't care. I don't care about anything. They, they just want to my, demonize. They you. go, yeah. They want to demonize me. They, they they don't care about my kids. That I, I have the most beautiful kids, and you know the stuff that they say about me will hurt my kids. <laughs> they, don't they don't care. care. <laughs> they don't care about any of that. This was always been to just discredit me at, at any cost, and you know that's why I'm excited about this because I'm reclaiming my own story. Yeah. Um for the for the first time i'm getting to tell people to set the record straight that's why it's called a rebel from the start because that when you read the book you'll learn that from yeah. day one from birth i was a rebel but it is setting the record straight and those little lies are only a few pages of the book that's the funny thing yes i, I keep doing interviews and I it, and it, great, I it becomes it. about that but it's not the whole book is really not about those no, things. No, it's it's completely it's really fascinating and, and like I, I read it from cover to cover in one go. Uh you know, I just sat there and read it and I just thought, wow. I don't I don't know if I should take that as a as a, as a compliment or it, it sounds like a grade six. I couldn't I couldn't put it down. I, I couldn't put it down over you. So how do people get this book? Rebelfromthestart.com. You can get the book there. You can also sign up to the book tour that is launching in New Zealand first, the censorship capital of the world. Yes, I said it. And if you're going to do the next obvious thing that some of you have done and cry about me calling it the censorship capital of the world because you think North Korea is worse, okay, you win. North Korea is worse. The difference is they don't pretend not to be. Yeah, they're not pretending do. to be kind. So – the so when are you capital. coming here, Avi? Your fans are uh, are really when, looking forward to seeing you. I hope so. I'm looking forward to seeing them. 25th of August in Auckland, 26th in Wellington, um, and then other dates in other places will be not not in New Zealand. So I think Melbourne will probably do on the Monday after that. But I hope to see and you know as many of you guys as possible. I'm sorry I can't get around. The entire, you know, the other island, but I know some people have said it's quite expensive to get there. I I would come. I just at this stage it's it's impossible. So I'd love to see for those of you that can make it, come. I'll uh, I'll sign the book if you want. I find that a bit funny. Have we have we got the have we got any other news that we can tell? Is 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 it confirmed about the rebel commander? The rebel command is coming. Yeah, you can break that here. Yeah, Ezra Levant so is, is coming to New Zealand as well. So if you're going to go to these events, you're going to get a twofer. Yeah, you're going to uh, get Ezra's probably better than me. So that's you're going to get that's Ezra, uh, you know, uh, and Arby, and and I'll be there at the book launches, of course. And uh, we really look forward to seeing you here, Arby. Finally, uh, thumbing your nose at immigration and the police on the way through. And Chanel L, who will no doubt be outside crying about something. Um, but unlike with Posey Parker, he's not going to chase anyone out. Um, and, uh, you know, that there'll be nice, safe events. So you don't have to worry. It's not going to be, be a replay of what happened there. This is going to be well organized um, with everybody's safety in mind. Um, and, yeah, I re rebelfromthestart.com, get the book, read it. 
and then bring it on the day. And if you want me to, I'll sign it. I've, I, I do feel a bit awkward about that at the moment because I, I, people are asking me and people that I actually look up to are making me sign their books. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you sign mine, Abby, because Lucky I'm I don't not, look up I'm, to you. I'm not in the book. You put, <laughs> put Chantel Baker in the book, but you didn't put me in the book. So I, it's true. I, I, I was, uh, when we were talking now, I got a bit embarrassed thinking, oh, I didn't actually, because we talk, I talk about, the things you did yeah but i didn't name you but it's all right i'm not after glory i'm just after the end result which is until baker i put in the book because she she screwed my life (laughs) i was outing her mind you i'm doing a podcast with her in melbourne tonight she's in melbourne all right good Thank you so much for coming on uh, my first show, Avi. I really appreciate it. I feel honoured that I was actually your first show. When you told me I'm going to be the first show, I was thinking it's a good move because it can only go uphill from here. Yeah, you you popped my cherry, so to speak. Yeah, but (laughs) you can have the worst episode next week and it'll still be better than this one. (laughs) I don't know about that, Avi. Look, I'm looking forward to seeing you when you come back into the country. Me too, mate. Thank you for coming on The Crunch with Cam, and uh, we'll catch up in August. We definitely will. Don't worry about that. Right. I've made it. That's the first ever show of The Crunch. Next week, we're going to delve into politics in the important Northland electorate and talk with some of the key candidates. It's been a real pleasure hosting my own show after nine long years out of the limelight. I feel like I'm finally at home talking and listening to like-minded people. Email suggestions to inbox at realitycheck.radio for people or topics that you want me to discuss. And let's make this the best political show in New Zealand. We can't do it without your input. Stay tuned for a breakfast show repeat coming up next with features including money talks with my new friend Farzan Narani and Perigo's perspective with the one and only Lindsay Perigo. Finally, to finish, I thought we'd play one of my favourite songs by Phoenix, Listomania. Looking forward to having you join me again next Thursday at 4pm for The Crunch with Cam Slater.